Hello, hello everyone. Hi, welcome. I'm glad you have found your way here to Tea and Gemstones. This is your shiny podcast home for history, science, and social commentary about anything and everything to do with gemstones, jewelry, and precious metals. I am your host, Jen, here to take you on duly educational and entertaining auditory explorations of such topics as the gemstones of the zodiac, all about the science of colored diamonds, and debating the aesthetic value of cottage core jewelry. I believe in sharing all the little details because I think that's where a lot of life's joy is. Um, and speaking of things that bring joy to your life, um, I will try to edit it out of the background, but my air conditioner, um, is running because if you're living the life that I'm living, it's really, really hot outside. Um, normally I turn my air conditioner off when I record, but if I did that, I think the air inside my house might literally boil. Um, so if you hear like a gentle, aesthetically pleasing whooshing in the background that my non-sound engineer degree having self could not edit out of the background, please know that it's there so myself and my computer don't overheat while trying to record this podcast. Um, so that's it. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jen. Sorry that it's so hot outside. And let's get the show started. Lots of times people put on jewelry because it is pretty and we like pretty, but often humans choose to wear jewelry that is not only pretty, but it connects and represents deeper meanings for us. Love, hope, commitment, religion, identity, and eternity. People really like the concept of forever of something lasting for eternity and never changing. But I think you don't want to literally wear a necklace that just says the word forever on it. Although I guess maybe you do. And if you do, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with liking what you like. But I have found that most people prefer to embrace symbols to represent their feelings. That's the reason why we wear a heart to represent love or birthstones to represent our children, a cross or a star of David or some other religious symbol. I'm sure your jewelry box is full of symbolic talismans. So I want to talk about a symbol today. It's an ancient one, but just because it's been around for a very long time doesn't mean that everybody knows about it. Maybe part of the reason that this ancient symbol has low modern day name recognition is because of bad PR. Um, because this symbol has to do with snakes. <laughs> Did you just visibly wince or wrinkle your nose as soon as I said that? Yeah, since the beginning, in the beginning, uh, snakes have not had the best public relations campaign. But that might be just part of our human DNA that we cannot deny. In a March 2008 article for Live Science titled, Why We Fear Snakes, new research was presented suggesting that human beings have an intrinsic fear of snakes. The article states, quote, 
psychologists found that both adults and children could detect images of snakes among a variety of non-threatening objects more quickly than they could pinpoint frogs, flowers, or caterpillars. The researchers think this ability helped humans survive in the wild. End quote. Survive. Uh, Because that's the basis of our fear of snakes, right? That they will bite us and it will hurt and we might die. But usually, I guess, depending on where you live, snakes are not an everyday part of your life. Apologies if you're listening in Australia. Apparently, y'all are number one in the world for a number of reptiles. But aside from the Aussies down under, snakes usually aren't an everyday encounter. But what we do encounter most days, at least if you're a listener to this podcast, is we stand in front of our jewelry box in the morning and decide what to put on for the day. What symbol, what vibe, what feeling do we want to capture today? I did a very official form of data collection when I first started researching for this episode Uh, I asked an open-ended question on my Instagram stories. I asked people what symbol or motif to them represented forever or eternity. And I got some pretty good answers. A lot of people said the infinity symbol. A lot of people said a circle, like a wedding ring, a never-ending circle. Someone said a compass, which I thought was a really cool answer. They elaborated and said it means like charting and following the path forward, always moving forward for forever, which I had never heard of someone interpreting a compass in that way before. I really liked it. But for all the answers Instagram gave me, no one said snakes. (laughs) But if I had asked that question in whatever form of social media existed in Victorian times, I bet snakes would have been a much more popular answer because the woman who gave her name to the age, Queen Victoria of England, she was clued in to snake symbolism. Her engagement ring was a snake. Her true love, Prince Albert, gave her an engagement ring in 1839 made from yellow gold crafted in the shape of a snake coiled around her finger inlaid with diamonds, emeralds, and rubies. She got all three. All three of the big three. In those days, it was traditional to use birthstones instead of diamonds, and snakes symbolized wisdom and commitment. Beyond her engagement ring, Queen Victoria also memorably rocked a snake bracelet of not one, but three intertwined snakes around her wrist when she attended her first official council meeting after taking the throne channeling three times the amount of wisdom and commitment, I guess. In Marion Faisal's amazing book, Beautiful Creatures, Jewelry Inspired by the Animal Kingdom, she goes into great detail across almost a dozen pages, dishing out details of all things snake jewelry. But she also mentions that Victoria wasn't the only British royal with an iconic snake piece. Faisal writing, quote, Great Britain's Princess Alexandra, who became queen consort when her husband Edward VII ascended the throne in 1901, often wore a gold serpent bracelet with a gem-set head, end quote. But the Brits were not the first culture to fall under snakes' spell. 
like most jewelry motifs, <laughs> you know, this is where I follow the source and it usually ends up winding back in the warm sands of Egypt and snake jewelry, no exception, can trace its origins to Egypt. There are images of Egyptians wearing snake ornamentation on 3000 year old tomb paintings, but it's the, man, I always butcher this word, the Ptolemaic, the Ptolemies. Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt that really made snake jewelry popular, aka the iconic Queen Cleopatra. From being depicted wearing a cobra headdress, snake armbands to her alleged suicide by snake bite, Cleopatra brought snakes into the forefront of history and pop culture. In fact, that links back to the Victorian time period, which is when European archaeologists were making all manner of discoveries in Egypt, and also artifacts from the Roman period. The Romans like snakes too. The unearthing of ancient snake jewelry made the serpent designs immensely popular. It's like a throwback. The seductive coiled bodies of snakes have remained a popular design point for many high jewelry houses, like Italian jewelry Bulgari, making the snakes a house signature. In a twist of fact, actress Elizabeth Taylor received a Bulgari snake bracelet as a signing bonus for joining the cast of the movie Cleopatra, a film released in 1963. Yes, there's all manner of glorious, glamorous, bejeweled to the max masterworks of art snake jewelry pieces on the market. But, but the snake motif I really want to take a closer look at circles back to the concept of what represents forever. Circle being the key word. Let me introduce you to the true star of today's episode, Oros Boros. Orosboros is a word from ancient Greek, which breaks into two parts, ora meaning tail and boros meaning eating. But rather than call the symbol tail eating, it's more popular to refer to Orosboros by the more dramatic phrase tail devourer, because that is the symbol. It is a snake, sometimes a dragon, but most of the time a snake a snake eating its own tail, thus forming a circle, an endless loop. While the name is Greek, the oldest Orosboros comes from the ancient Egyptians, the most reliable source of a motif's origin point. The first depiction of an Orosboros is in the tomb of KV-62, or better known as the tomb of the boy king Tutankhamun, or King Tut. On one of the shrines enclosing the sarcophagus of the king's mummified body, get this, side note, the shrines, these big structures all have names, and this shrine's name is the Enigmatic Book of the Netherworld, which I mean, is it possible to think of a better name? I submit not. So on this shrine, the Enigmatic Book of the Netherworld is a carved depiction of a long, thin serpent eating its tail. The serpent circle itself is layered over an image of the king's physical profile of his head, and then an identical serpent circle encompasses his feet, perhaps to channel the idea the king would live on forever and forever. 
In a way, this ancient Orosboros is prophetic, as King Tut is undoubtedly the most famous Egyptian mummy known the world over. Some historians believe the Orosboros is not actually King Tut, but the ancient Egyptian deity Mehin, also known by the ominous name the Enveloper. Mehin as a god represents both the beginning of time and the end of time. If that sounds spooky to you, that's definitely on brand for Orosboros. It is a darker motif. You know, there are some symbols in jewelry like a heart or a dove that are pretty difficult to skew towards spooky, but with Orosboros, it's not hard to be a little creeped out. (laughs) I mean, it's a snake eating its tail, but there is no denying the powerful connection to the symbol of time, forever and never ending, all concepts that humans are drawn to, whether we are drawn because we feel if we embrace our mortality, it's somehow easier to come to terms with, or the idea of eternity is so difficult to grasp these tangible symbols make eternity more palatable. Egyptologist Jan Osman makes this statement about how the King Tut's people viewed the Orosboros, saying, quote, The symbol refers to the mystery of cyclical time, which flows back into itself, end quote. So we first see Orosboros in ancient Egypt. The King Tut artifact dates to approximately 13th century B.C., But the symbol doesn't just stay in the desert sands. It is fascinating to me. We know our modern world today is very, very connected. And we may be forgiven for assuming the world of the past just is not very connected. But by no means were ideas and concepts completely geographically limited. Yes, ancient civilizations don't have TikTok, But there was still a meshing and blending of knowledge and information across peoples. So whether different cultures all individually came up with the notion of a tail devourer or the idea was adapted from other places, we see the Orosboros all over the ancient world. Let's explore. In China, Orosboros make an appearance on a piece of pottery found in the Yellow River Basin. Its age is estimated to be between 5,000 and 3,000 BCE. This predates the iconic yin-yang symbol meant to represent perfect balance and harmony. You know, the yin-yang, the black and the white circles together. Some historians believe that the Yellow River Basin Orosboros forming its circle with its body being half white and half black is the founding ancestor of the yin-yang. I found several academic articles diving into the symbology, but honestly, it was too dense a subject for me. What I pulled away from it is that the Orosboros of China is believed to embody matter and energy being dual-natured, but becoming one as the snake eats its own tail. Orosboros dealing with matter and energy. Now, this is the stuff of the mystical science of alchemy. Alchemy is a very complicated subject that I actually speak at great length about um, way back in episode 10 of season one, which is um, episode 10 is a casual history of gold part three. 
Um, Alchemy is a fascinating blend of science, magic, and mystery, and mankind's alchemic quest to create gold over millennia has led to developing mysticism, scores of legitimate scientific discoveries, and um, a lot of death. (laughs) The Orosboros is considered the oldest allegorical symbol of alchemy. Allegorical means a narrative or visual representation to convey meaning. There is an Orosboros illustration in an early alchemical book titled The Chrysopoeia of Cleopatra, which dates back to the 3rd century Alexandria, an Egyptian city famous for its library, lighthouse, and being a base of knowledge and ideas. This alchemy book calls the Orosboros the all is one. And we all know a book is a great way to transport ideas. The Orosboros concept spread outwards. We see the circular snakes appearing among the Greeks and the Romans. This is also when the motif seems to first transition into jewelry. The Romans would wear Orosboros on magical talismans for protection. The Egyptian alchemy texts and Greco-Roman Orosboros artifacts came through the timeline of history and slowly and thoroughly spread into mainland Europe. During the European Renaissance, we see Orosboros appearing in illustrations for alchemy books and portrayed as a symbol of those interested in discovery through that curious blend of magic and developing science. Speaking of a curious blend... During the first century AD, Gnosticism as a religion was developing. The true origins of this collection of beliefs is really not known, and this isn't a religious historical podcast, so I'll do my best to explain. Um, It's a big debate also about how Christianity and Judaism each contributed and blended in what particular way to create this really complex set of beliefs that encompasses Gnosticism. Um, But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to be talking about how the Gnostics adopted the Orosboros as their symbol to, and I'll quote here from the Encyclopedia Britannica, which seems an odd source, but I wanted to make sure my info was correct and unbiased, and a flat-out encyclopedia seemed the most clear-cut way to get information without it having a slant like to the left or the right. So it says that the Gnostics believe the Orosboros to, quote, express the unity of all things, material and spiritual, which never disappear, but perpetually change form in an eternal cycle of destruction and recreation, end quote. So, like other religions who wear their symbols on pendants, crosses, Star of David, Ohms, Allah charms, Catholic saint medallions, Gnostics wear an Orosboros, the power of jewelry to symbolize an entire belief system, which is otherwise hard to explain. So, I'll stop trying. Beyond alchemy and religion, Orosboros also appears in Norse mythology as the serpent god. Oh boy as the serpent god Horgmungadr. Yep, he's a child of Loki, the god of mischief. <laughs> this enormous magic snake was so massive, it would wrap itself around the entire world and hold its own tail in its teeth. 
There are also several other smaller Norse myths involving Orosboros, like one of a son of the legendary Ragnar Lothbrook. You might know that name from the epic History Channel TV series, Vikings. I recommend. It's worth a watch. It's entertaining. Um, But this son of Ragnar is born with the symbol of a white Orosboros around the iris of one of his eyes. So he is named Sigurd Snake in the Eye. And he went on to do a lot of what you'd expect as typical Viking activities, like raiding and pillaging and sort of ruling over people. Um, As I'm going through this historical rundown featuring myths and eternal cycles of destruction and recreation, you will probably be surprised to hear the next place Orosboros turns up. Uh, Chemistry. Okay, yes, chemistry was born from alchemy. You can see episode 10 for a big detailed explanation about how that came to be. But the Ouroboros symbol played a specific point of inspiration to one man, a German organic chemist named Frederick August Kukle. He said an Ouroboros came to him in a vision to help him understand the structure of benzene, an organic chemical compound. How exactly benzene was put together with its atoms was not well understood, with many scientists proposing possible shape layouts for benzene starting in the 1860s. But thanks to his vision, Kukle formally laid out his benzene structure in a paper he published in 1865. His design explained many curious facts about benzene, and his discovery was so significant for both pure and applied chemistry that in 1890, the German Chemical Society, which I think sounds like a great punk rock band name, doesn't it? The German Chemical Society had a big party to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Kukle's paper. But I want to mention, because I just love a good primary source, Kukle himself gave a speech at this party, which was translated into English, and I wanted to share it because it's always captivating to hear a story directly. Kukle says, quote, I was sitting, writing at my textbook, but the work did not progress. My thoughts were elsewhere. I turned my chair to the fire and dozed. Again, the atoms were gambling before my eyes. This time, the smaller groups kept modestly in the background. My mental eye, rendered more accurate by the repeated visions of the kind, could now distinguish larger structures of manifold conformation, long rows, sometimes more closely fitted together, all twining and twisting in snake-like motion. But look, what was that? One of the snakes had seized hold of its own tail, and the form whirled mockingly before my eyes. As if by a flash of lightning, I awoke, and this time also I spent the rest of the night in working out the consequences of the hypothesis. End quote. Quite the thing, yeah? Scientific inspiration via a vision of fiery snakes eating their own tails. They don't teach you that in high school science, that that could happen to you. I noticed something when I looked up Ouroboros on Etsy. I don't know if this is a new feature. I feel like I would have noticed it before now, but Etsy tells you what the average price of the item you just searched is. And the average price of a piece of Ouroboros 
jewelry on Etsy as of the time that I researched is $83, 83 American dollars. I'm not sure what I expected, but that seems very reasonable. Most of the pieces that I saw are rendered in sterling silver, which is a very affordable fine metal. I also saw stainless steel and brass, even copper. Gold does come into play, though not in the quantities you might expect, which is probably the reason for the lower average price point of items, because gold is very expensive. I saw a couple interesting pieces that were carved from wood. And leaning into more of the gothic spooky vibes, I saw some pieces rendered in pewter, which is gray toned, but much darker than sterling silver with a lot of like black oxidized detailing and the scales of the snake. When I sorted the items by highest price, because you know that's my favorite thing to do, I need to see the most expensive things. That's obviously what I'm here to look at. Um, I typed in Oros Boros jewelry. I sorted most expensive first. And the top thing that came out was a $27,000 painting that was called Banana Oros Boros, which was like a snake banana hybrid piece of art that somebody was trying to sell. Again, I repeat for $27,000 and it wasn't even jewelry. So I guess Etsy sponsored that post and went right up to the top, which is like a pet peeve of mine. I don't want to see that, but the other real pieces of jewelry, there were like over 10,000, um, ranged from modern pieces to antique Victorian pieces, hearkening back to the time I discussed at the very beginning of the episode, where the queen who gave her name to the time period was rocking a snake engagement ring. The royal family were the celebrities of this time and what they had, everybody else wanted. So obviously Victorian era jewelers had royal snakes as a motivating trend to create beautiful pieces of jewelry for everyone else. And a surprising large amount of those pieces have survived on for decades upon decades, ultimately to be sold on the online marketplace that I can browse from my smartphone. What a world. <laughs> I have to be honest, as I was working on this episode and going through all the symbolism and the heritage behind the Orosboros, I kind of was thinking to myself, perhaps this is too much to assign to one symbol. Um, last episode, I was talking about cottage core, that it was, there was no depth to it. It's all just pure aesthetics and there's no real symbolism or meaning. And then this is just a big old pendulum swing in the other direction. I mean, for something on the surface appearing simple, a snake holding on to its own tail, but then for thousands of years, humans in all different cultures and all different geographical locations have been attributing the full gambit of meaning to this reptilian circle, eternity, life, death, rebirth, religion, myth, legend. I struggle to see what more you could assign onto the non-existent shoulders of Orosboros. Is it too much? Is Orosboros an overused trend? Except for all the places where I found Orosboros used, it always seemed deeply intentional. It is not just a default symbol to assign to eternity. Each culture and peoples who put their own version of forever onto the circular snake cared immensely for the Orosboros. I have to give that my respect. Part of why I wanted to do this episode is because I found it interesting that in our modern times, 
the Orosboros symbol seems to be in hibernation. In jewelry, I would say snakes are very popular, but the design of a snake holding its tail is much less popular than a simple coiled snake wraparound design. But if history teaches us anything, it's that everything repeats, comes back around again, like a never-ending circle. And perhaps in the future, Orosboros will surge in popularity again, or be assigned to a new legend, or be the inspiration for some new discovery. That's all for this episode of Tea and Gemstones. Do you own a piece of Orosboros jewelry? Or are snakes a motif you just cannot embrace? What other symbol of eternity would you rather wear? I want to hear about it. Leave me a comment on the Instagram grid for this episode. I would love to connect on social media. You can find me at TN Gemstones Podcast. If you're loving these regular season episodes and you're all caught up and want more, um, TN Gemstones also has a Patreon. There's a link in the show notes and there's a link on my Instagram profile. On Patreon, there's an exclusive library of episodes found nowhere else, and you can also get fun show merchandise like stickers, t-shirts and tote bags. You can never have enough stickers and tote bags. Um, Thanks to everyone leaving ratings and reviews, especially if you're listening on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That really helps the show stay active in the algorithm so new listeners can find the podcast. It has been a pleasure spending time with y'all. Thanks for putting up with me and my air conditioner sound. I've been your host, Jen. Our theme song is by Joseph McDade. And there may have been some additional music work by Audionautics if I was on the ball. Anyway, (laughs) season three, the epitome of season three, if anyone is still listening. I'm sure a lot of you either skipped to the next episode or have already exited because everyone always knows that people at the end of podcasts just say the same thing over and over again. You know, the whole spiel. This is where you get my merch. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Um, The season three... Uh, the the motto has just been like, we're doing the best we can. And I really appreciate the support that everyone has been giving on social media. Um, as I'm dealing with, um, I do new daily persistent headache diagnosis, um, and getting through that. And I just really appreciate that support, especially y'all still hanging out here on this tail end of the episode. Okay, everyone until next time, stay sparkly.